Father, in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that we've come to honor, the one that has saved us from sin and redeemed us by His blood, in the name of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we come before you and want to hear a word from you today. We want to hear you speak, Lord. And we know that you speak in your word. And so, Lord, I'm, I'm just asking that you could make me a vessel that would not distort the word, but would just bring it clearly the way you've communicated it in the scripture. I pray that you'd help us as a church to grab hold of the mission that you've called us to, Lord. In Jesus' holy name, amen. So my question to you this morning is simply this. What's the mission of the church? Yes. Oleg says to make disciples. Um, we're going to be looking at some scriptures where Jesus lays out for us our mission. You know, why are we here? There, there must be a reason why we assemble week after week after week. We're not just going through motions because we feel like going through motions. There's a, there's a purpose for the church to exist. And the Lord Jesus tells his disciples what that is after he has been raised from the dead and before he goes back to heaven. And he tells them over and over and over. Now, there's actually more than one reason why the church exists. I can think of three solid, sound, biblical reasons why God has called the church into existence. See, we have a responsibility to God, to ourselves, to the church, and then to the world. So if we're going to talk about our responsibility to God, the answer would be we exist to exalt Him, to worship Him. Think about Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. There in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that He's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. And then on in verse 6, He says, In Him we have been redeemed through His blood. We have the forgiveness of our sins. Verse 13 and 14, he talks about being sealed by the Holy Spirit. So, think about these questions. Why has God chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world? Why has he predestined you to become adopted as sons? Why has he redeemed you by blood? Why has he sealed you with the Holy Spirit? He gives us the answer in Ephesians chapter 1 in three different times. It's verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. First answer, it's to the praise of the glory of His grace. Second answer, it's to the praise of His glory. Third answer, it's to the praise of His glory. Do you see why God does what He does? Why has God saved you? To glorify His grace and to glorify Himself in bestowing salvation upon His people. God saved you to worship Him. God called the church into existence to be a worshiping body that would exalt Him. Now we think, doesn't that make God a little bit egocentric? God's doing all this stuff just because He wants to be praised? Well, can you think of a more worthy being to receive worship than God? And if God existed for someone other than Himself, would that be righteous on God's part? 
That would be unrighteous. He'd be com committing idolatry, esteeming something other than himself to be God, which nothing else is. So yes, God does all things to the praise of the glory of his grace. Over in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 9, I want to read this one to you. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So God has done all this for His church, made her a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for His own special possession, so that this body of people would exist to extol Him, exalt Him, praise the excellencies of Him who called us out of this domain of darkness and He brought us into His own marvelous light. So number one, the church exists to exalt God. We can see that this morning from Scripture. Secondly, the church exists to edify itself. And we saw that from Ephesians chapter 4 last week. I hope you remember that one. We were looking at Ephesians 4, 12 to 16 in particular. And it says that in verse 12, God has called and gifted certain people to be evangelists and apostles and pastor teachers and prophets to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So all of the saints are called to ministry. And the result of that ministry in verse 12 is to the building up of the body of Christ. The edification of the body of Christ. He goes on to say in verse 13, until we all attain to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Or verse 15, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Or verse 16, when each individual part does its proper work, it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Building up is the same thing as edification. The reason the church exists is every member to minister to the other so that all of us are built up and matured to the measure of Christ. If you were to go to 1 Corinthians 14, you would see this word edify or some derivative of that word occur seven times in that single chapter. And of course, when we go to 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's talking about spiritual gifts, specifically tongues and interpretation of tongues and prophecy as well. But there, seven different times, he says, the reason you guys are gathering, the reason you're using these gifts, is to edify the whole. For example, verse 12, So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. That's why God gives us different gifts, to build up, to edify the rest of the church. Not necessarily ourselves. He gives a gift for you, for others. And then look at, well, we've already seen verse 26, but let's quote it again. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, a tongue, a teaching, a revelation, an interpretation. Just let all things be done for edification, for the building up of the body. So, our responsibility to God, exaltation. Our responsibility to the church, edification. But the one I really want to speak to you about this morning is the third one. And it's usually the word we don't do too well at. Our responsibility towards the world. Can you guess? 
Evangelization. Yes, we are to evangelize the world. We are to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost world. And we're going to look at that one specifically today. Usually somebody's last words are considered very important. Like if someone's dying, we'll usually draw close, we'll put our ear up to his mouth. If he can barely whisper, we'll try to catch his last words. And we'll usually like write them down and talk about them to each other for years to come. Well, we have the last words of Jesus in the scriptures. The last words before he ascended back to heaven. And I want to read those with you today. First of all, we're going to look at Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, and then we're going to look in Acts chapter 1. So Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now this is what we call the Great Commission. The last words of Jesus. Let's go over to Mark chapter 16 and see his version of this same thing. And Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Do you see how high the stakes are? You will either be saved or you will be condemned based on whether you believe this gospel of Jesus Christ, and then if you truly believe it, you will evidence that belief by being baptized. Okay, let's look at Luke, chapter 24, 46 to 48. And Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So I'd like you to try to remember what each one of these scriptures is saying, because we're going to come back and make comment on them in just a minute. This one here in particular emphasizes repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now, finally, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. We basically have the same message given to us four different times in four different ways, don't we? I think Jesus wanted there to be no doubt what our job description was. And so he, he gives the same basic content in four different ways, filling it in, rounding it out, helping us to see this is what the church is to be about doing until I come back. From the time of my first coming to the time of my second coming, this is my commission. This is my call for you. I think he wanted to leave this ringing in their ears. He wanted them to never forget what they were on earth for. It was as if he would say, you can forget all kinds of things, but this is one thing you may never forget. Your job is to preach the gospel and to make disciples until I return. You see, these are our marching orders. 
Last week we pictured the church as uh, a bunch of spectators in the stands watching a sporting event. And we thought, that would, that's a bad example for the church, isn't it? We're not supposed to be spectators. We're supposed to be in the game. We're supposed to be advancing our team to victory. But too often we find ourselves kind of watching the pastor or the minister of music minister and do their thing and we kind of critique them. That was good. That was bad. We boo or we cheer for them. We sit up in the stands. Today I want to change the illustration. We are not spectators in the stands. We are an army of soldiers that Jesus Christ has called out of the world to advance his kingdom and to make his fame known. We're an army. And this, if you talk about the universal church, this is a gigantic army, isn't it? it? It spreads across the globe. Practically every nation of the world, there are emissaries, there are soldiers of Jesus that he has deployed into those areas to advance his kingdom and to make him famous throughout the world. And we here at the bridge, we're just a little tiny part of that great big army. But he's deployed us here in Rancho Cordova because he has a job assignment for us. And what's the job assignment? Here it is. You are to go beyond enemy lines. You are to advance into enemy territory. And you're to take back from Satan what is rightfully Christ's. And you are to bring glory and fame to your commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. So th those are his marching orders for us sitting here today. The bridge. The Bridge House Church. We're deployed here. I should say maybe specifically, we're deployed to Anatolia, because that's where we happen to meet. But if we wanted to round it out, I would say at least Rancho Cordova. So we are an army. We're soldiers. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Every one of us are soldiers of Jesus Christ. We are to be willing to suffer hardship in order to take back from Satan what is rightfully Christ's and to advance the kingdom of Jesus all over the world, we are to suffer hardship in order to do that. You see, we are not vacationers on a cruise ship. That's not who we are. We are soldiers in an army. Bullets are whistling all around us. Some of our team members, our, our, our co-soldiers are being hit and we're taking them to undercover and, and treating them. And then we keep on advancing with our guns in our hands, fighting the enemy, taking back from him what is not rightfully his, advancing Jesus' kingdom. You see, what we're called to is not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful sometimes. No one likes rejection. That's what it's going to take to advance this kingdom. It's going to be um, sorrowful sometimes. But this is what the Lord has called us to. Now, I would like Oleg just to put up a chart, a blank chart, where these are the scriptures that we just looked at. And in each one of them, there is a command given. There's an audience that he tells us to obey this command to. And then there's a promise attached. And so let's think through these passages. First of all, Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. What's the command that Jesus gives there? Absolutely, that's what it is. Now, it sounds like the command is to go. 
doesn't it? Go therefore. But actually in the Greek text, go is not a, a verb, it's a participle, which is a verbal adjective. There's only one command given. There's one imperative in Matthew 28. And it's make disciples. There are three participles. Going, baptizing, and teaching. The participles tell us how to obey the command. The command is to make disciples. We do that by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. Okay, so there we have the command. Who's the audience that we're to go to? All the nations. All the nations. You know what's cool about living here? Is that we have all the nations that live right next door to us. <laughs> we went out yesterday knocking on doors and talking to people. And uh, we met folks from India, folks from China, um, Hispanics. They all live around us. So we don't even have to go to other parts of the world. We can obey that command right where we live. Okay, what's the promise that Jesus gives in this command? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he starts the whole thing off by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, why is that important? He tells us this before he gives his command. Why is it important for him to say, I've got all the authority everywhere, now I'm commanding you to go. Do you see the connection? The sovereign of the universe, the highest one in all the universe, has the power and has the authority to command us, and we are simply the subjects, the servants of this sovereign. And then he backs up the whole thing by saying, hey, I'm going to be with you. I've got all the authority in heaven and on earth. You can go in my power, and I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to aid you, and I'm going to enable you to do what I'm calling you to do. Can, don't you imagine that when those first 11 apostles heard this command, they, they thought, how in the world, Lord, can we do that? We're 11 people. You want us to go to the entire world and make disciples of all the nations on the planet? We're only 11 people, Lord. And the Lord says, I'm going to be with you. That's how you're going to do this. Okay, let's look at the second one, Mark 16. What's the command there? Primarily, it's to go and preach. Go and preach. And, and he gives us the content of what we're to preach here. It's the gospel. That's the good news of what God has done through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to save sinners. That's the message. Go and preach that gospel. What is the audience? Okay, all the world, and what else? Who do we preach to? All creation. The King James, I think, says every creature. Doesn't it? Someone have a King James? I think that's what it says. Every person on the planet, these are the marching orders of Jesus for the church. You're to go and tell every person on this planet the gospel. And these are commands of the great sovereign of the universe. Okay, let's look at, oh wait a minute, the promise. Do we see any promise back here in Mark chapter 16? That's true. There, there will be signs accompany those who believe. But right in this section here, there's a promise that something will happen. Yeah, yeah. When we preach, we have the promise that if someone believes that and shows that they actually believe it by being baptized, they will be saved. They will not be condemned. They will be saved.
Okay, let's look at Luke 24. What's the command here? This isn't a specifically addressed command, but if you read that carefully, you'll see that there is an order given. Exactly. We are to proclaim that if someone repents of their sin, there is forgiveness of sins available to them. Of course, it comes back to the gospel, that Christ purchased forgiveness. But here in Luke... The command has to do with including repentance as part of this invitation to salvation. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name. Who's the audience? Okay, but you're in Acts now. Oh, no, you are. Okay, I see where you're coming from. Beginning from Jerusalem. Say that again. It's Jerusalem and then? There you go. There you go. Yeah, he says here, all the nations. It sounds a lot like Matthew 28, doesn't it? Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Here he repeats all the nations, although he does tell us it's going to start in Jerusalem. Okay, now let's go to Acts chapter 1. Oh yeah, the promise. Did you guys see a promise there? Yeah, I think the promise then would be that if they repent, there is forgiveness of sins available. Just like Mark 16, they will be saved if they believe and are baptized. Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 1. So do you see any... There's not a direct command given here, but there's an implied command. What is the church to be? Witnesses. witnesses. We must bear witness to Christ. Who's the audience? and then to the remotest part of the earth. In other words, the whole world. <laughs> Everybody in the world you're to take this message to. Is there any kind of a promise connected to it? Yes, we will have the power of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of like Jesus saying, and behold, I am with you always. You're going to have the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this task of getting the gospel to every person on the planet Take that seriously, and I will back you up. He's saying, the power of the Holy Spirit will be with you. Now, let's go back all again. Let's fill in the chart. Command, make disciples. All the nations. Christ will be with us to the end of the age. Yeah, here in Luke 24, the promise, uh, clothed with power from on high. <coughs> Now, take a look at these four passages of Scripture. Three of them are very similar in terms of the command. Mark, Luke, and Acts. He tells them to say something, proclaim something. Have you ever heard of people, uh, a lot of churches say, well, the evangelism we do at our church is friendship evangelism. It's relationship evangelism, which means we just try to be friends to non-Christians and we try to give an example of the Christian life. But you know what? If that's all you ever do, you've never obeyed these commands. Because you cannot obey these commands without opening up your mouth and talking. It's important to have a holy life. You have to have that to back up what you're saying. But if you never get around to talking to anybody, you have never obeyed this 
command of Jesus Christ. Look here. Go and preach. Proclaim. Be a witness. That has to do with saying something. Now, the one that's different is Matthew. Matthew's version of this is more comprehensive. It's fuller. He doesn't say, just go and talk. Matthew says, go and make disciples. Matthew tells us that if somebody responds to what you say, that's just the beginning. You have to continue on from that point to form and mold that new believer into a disciple of Jesus. And according to Matthew 28, what is a disciple like? What's the goal of discipleship? What are we teaching them? Be like the master. Yes, to be like the master. He says, to observe everything I commanded you. So you, these, these 11 apostles, okay, Lord, well, what did you teach us? Everything you taught me, I've got to pour into this new Christian that's just come to faith. So these are our marching orders. That's what God has called us here, this local church. That's what he's called every local church to do. We need to assume our responsibility to do this. Or else we don't have the right to call ourselves a church. We should disband and we should go to a church that's going to be serious about doing it. And I'm dead serious about that. What's going to happen if a soldier in an army receives an order from his superior that he doesn't like and so he just ignores it? What's going to happen to him? Nothing good. Nothing good. <laughs> He's probably going to find himself down in the hole for a couple of weeks in solitary confinement until he learns to obey orders. We do not have the right to take what we just read and just say, well, I'll let somebody else do that. I'm just going to kind of ignore that. I don't like that, so I'll do something else I like. Jesus... The head of the church doesn't allow that. If we are truly disciples, we don't have a choice in this matter. We're soldiers. He's in charge. He's given us orders. Do, do you guys really get that down deep in your soul? We are under obligation to do our part to advance His kingdom. We must. We must do it. We have no right to even call ourselves Christians because we're directly defying the most clear command and order that Jesus Christ gave his church before he left. So I'm, I'm saying that's all the passion I have to try to get this into your heart and soul so you own it. Our mission here at the bridge is simple. We exist to glorify God by making disciples that make disciples. That's why we exist. And I wonder how many of us here really own that and really say, yeah, I'm in. I see that from Scripture. I'm a disciple. I'm going to do whatever I can to aid and abet that mission. Now, some people are on the front lines. They're like the Marines. Other people are back further. Some people come in, you know, the Air Force or the Navy. And you've got all these different people from different spheres coming together to advance victory. Not everybody does exactly the same thing. Right? And I understand that. Some people are called to stand up on a box and preach on the street. Other people are called to pray fervently for lost family members or neighbors that live right next door to them. Some people will uh, use their time, effort, and energies to develop friendships with lost people, but not just so they have a friendship, so that they will tell them the gospel. So all of us will have a part to play in this. And no one needs to feel judged because they don't do the exact same thing that somebody else does. But my friends, 
Brothers and sisters, all of us have a part. And if you're not doing anything, you're being disobedient to Jesus Christ. Okay. If I were to sum all of this up, I would say, Jesus has commanded us to preach the gospel, which includes repentance, depending on the power of the Holy Spirit, in order to make disciples, and the process by which we make disciples is by going to them, baptizing them upon profession of faith, and then continuing to teach them to obey everything that the Master has commanded them. Now that is the sovereign command of Christ. That's the first half of this message. That's what Jesus has commanded. Now I want to show you the obedient response of the church. The question here is, so what did the church do when Jesus commanded them to do that? How'd they respond? Well, they responded in three ways in order to obey these words. They did preach the gospel, they made disciples, and they planted churches. Let's talk about that first one. They preached the gospel. Just run through the book of Acts with me for a minute. Chapter 2. Peter gets up, he preaches to thousands thousands of people there in Jerusalem and he preaches of Christ crucified in the very next chapter he goes up to the temple he heals a man who's lame from his womb a big crowd assembles Peter preaches the gospel again over in Acts chapter 5 there's a summary statement in verse 42 Acts 5:42. and every day in the temple and from house to house they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So they're doing it in the temple. They're doing it from house to house. They're teaching and preaching Jesus. They're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do, aren't they? They're obeying Him. Chapter 7. Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin. He has to give a defense for his message. And so what does he do? He tells the story of the Old Testament. He tells the story of how God chose Israel and brought them into the promised land and how finally how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. And the Sanhedrin rises up and stones him to death because of his faithful witness to Christ. But he's preaching Jesus. In chapter 8, we find another disciple named Philip. He goes down to the city of Samaria. And he preaches Christ to them, and multitudes are converted while miracles take place. Later in that same chapter, the Holy Spirit sends him off in a different direction where he sees this eunuch from Ethiopia, from Africa, coming back from Jerusalem where he's been worshiping and he's going home. And this eunuch just happens to be the treasurer of the queen. Pretty influential guy, isn't he? Well, the, God leads him to to, to embrace that man as he's going down that dusty road and he overhears him reading something. Of all the things this guy could possibly be reading, he's reading, first of all, Scripture. Secondly, he's reading Isaiah chapter 53. Probably the clearest <laughs> text of the Messiah who would come in all of the Old Testament. And so he says, do you understand what you're reading? Well, how could I unless someone helps me understand it? And so he hops up into the chariot, and they ride along together, and he explains the chapter. It's all about Jesus. Jesus has died and rose again for your salvation. He's preaching Christ. In chapter 10, Peter goes down to Cornelius and his household, and he preaches the gospel to that family. 
and they're all converted, the Spirit falls on them. In chapter 11, we see the church that is persecuted in Jerusalem. They're scattered, and many of them go up to Antioch, and they preach Jesus there, and multitudes are converted in Antioch. And then we could talk about the Apostle Paul. What does he do? Well, here's his strategy. He chooses the most prominent and influential cities in the Mediterranean world. He goes there. He finds the synagogue of the Jews. He stands up on a Sabbath day. He reads the scripture, and then he shows how Jesus has fulfilled those passages. So Paul's strategy is the same. Preach Christ. Preach Christ. Preach Christ. If there wasn't a synagogue, Paul finds a riverside where some Jewish women have met for prayer. If he can't even find that, he goes to Athens and he goes to the marketplace. And he reasons with the people there in the marketplace. Some of them take him to Mars Hill, where some influential philosophers are, and he preaches Christ to them. But do you see that they actually literally obeyed Jesus? Jesus had preached the gospel to every creature, and they did it. They did it. Uh, ten of those eleven, tradition says, were martyred because they obeyed Jesus. John was exiled to this island, Patmos. Well, tradition says they tried to put him in boiling oil, first of all, to kill him, and he wouldn't die. <laughs> it wouldn't kill him, so they took him out of there and put him on this island where he couldn't do any more mischief. But they suffered because they were going to be obedient to Jesus. But they were good soldiers of Christ Jesus, and they did what they were told. So they preached the gospel. Secondly, they made disciples. Just think about the Apostle Paul. Did Paul travel around by himself, as sort of a lone ranger? Preaching the gospel? and do, No, he didn't. He was always part of a team. He always had a Timothy with him, or a Silas, or an Aristarchus, or a Demas, or somebody. A John Mark, a Barnabas. He always traveled as part of a team, and I believe the reason he did that was because he was discipling younger men constantly. And the best way for him to do that was to travel with them, so that they're living together. And don't you know, there's lots of hours that these guys are on foot, and they're walking, or they're just sitting on a ship waiting to get to their next port. They had all kinds of time for Paul to teach and instruct them. If you go through the New Testament, you're going to find that there's at least 35 men that Paul teamed up with and worked with. He was constantly pouring his life into them. This was what Paul was after. This comes from 2 Timothy 2.2. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... These entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And that verse, you've got four generations. You've got Paul to Timothy, faithful men, and others also. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul passed on this deposit of truth to Timothy. Timothy was to pass it on to faithful men, and faithful men were to entrust it to others also. Now this shows us how one person, through just investing in three men, could have an influence and an impact on 27 other people. If each one of those people just invested their lives in three people. We're talking here about discipleship. About pouring your life into other people. Paul was doing this constantly with the men that he traveled with. They did it to faithful men. The faithful men entrusted it to others also. 
And so the gospel progresses and multiplies and advances through discipleship. Okay, let's put the other slide up. This is a slide I put together to try to help us envision the process of making disciples. Now, I'm going to use my little stick here, my pointer. Okay. Here we've got a lost person. Just imagine this is, is a, a baseball diamond. This is home plate. Okay? <laughs> we've got a lost person here. How is this lost person going to become a new disciple? Well, we need to evangelize him. That's how it happens. You have to bring him the gospel or he'll never be saved. But how does a new disciple then go from being a brand new disciple to an established disciple? We're going to have to establish him in the faith. Colossians chapter 2 speaks about that. We are going to have to pour into that new disciple until he becomes rooted and grounded and stable and maturing as a brother or sister in Christ. We do that in many different ways. Part of it is just by attending the gatherings of the church where you're taught the scriptures. Part of it's in smaller groups. And some of it's just on one-on-one -on -one mentoring. Someone who's older than you in the faith and is able to impart some things that you don't understand yet. This is a role that, that I do quite a bit of, uh, just discipling men, meeting with them privately, and trying to pour into them whatever I have to give, hoping that they will become established. Okay, well, let's say someone's been established. The next step is then to become an equipped disciple, which means that they have been trained. They have some skills now in ministry. Maybe it's the skill of preaching or teaching the Bible. Maybe it's learning how to witness and share their faith. Maybe it's learning to go to hospitals and minister to the hurting or the grieving. But they're being equipped. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. And then the final leg of this, well, this, we're going from a triple to a home run now, the equipped disciple becomes a worker, meaning that they are, they're, they're starting over and now they are pouring their lives into other disciples. So you go from being lost to a new disciple to being an established disciple to being an equipped disciple. And the way this happens is that they're entrusted now with ministry and authority to, in order to do that. So this is what God has called the church to do. We are to make disciples who make disciples. The way we do that is in many different ways, but I want to encourage you, I don't know if you're doing this or not, but if you're not, to find a younger person in the faith that needs to be established and start meeting with them regularly. I just recently finished writing a 24-lesson discipleship training manual. In fact, it's on our website. You can, you can download it. You can print off the pages that you want. Uh, I've used this for many different brothers where we'll meet together. And basically, the, the content of this training manual is all that Jesus commanded. So I went back into the Gospels. I found out everything Jesus commanded, and I came up with 24 lessons that uh, an older brother or sister can easily lead a younger brother or sister in understanding and obeying those commands of Jesus Christ. So, all of you are welcome to use that if it would be helpful. But the main thing is taking an interest in someone who needs your help, who's a younger brother or sister, and beginning to take time to, to meet with them, to pour your life into them, to pray for them, to give godly counsel to them, to look at the scriptures together, to be honest about your own problems and your own sins so, so they don't put you up on some kind of a pedestal. 
But it's basically, that's one-on-one -on -one discipling. And if you've never done that before, I want to encourage you to consider that. Pray about that. If there's somebody the Lord would want you, wouldn't it be great if there are five or six different discipling relationships in this church taking place? It'd be awesome. Now, this is, that's what we see going on in these early Christians. In Paul's life, he's pouring his life into men. Not only do they preach the gospel, but they're making disciples. And then finally, they planted churches. Think about the, the Apostle Paul's strategy. He goes into, let's say, Ephesus, or Iconium, or Lystra, or Derby, or Thessalonica. He goes to the synagogue. He preaches. Okay, what happens? Some people come to faith. So what does he do? Does he just leave town and say, well, I'll catch up with you in six months or a year? No. He forms those disciples together. He bands them together into a community. Now, there's nobody that's ready yet to become a leader of that church, and so he can't appoint leaders immediately. He goes away, but he tells them, you guys, you need to stick together like glue. You need to love each other. You, you need to band together. And he comes back in six months to a year, and he, he finds out who are the leaders that have surfaced to the top after this group has been meeting for a period of time, and he appoints them as elders. And these elders then have the responsibility to nurture and to teach and to shepherd and to cultivate this young, growing church. But that's what Paul would do. That was his strategy. His strategy doesn't, wasn't just to go and gather a great multitude and preach the gospel and leave. Paul was a church planter. He evangelized through planting churches. And it was uh, Peter Wagner who made this famous comment. He said, planting new churches is the most effective evangelistic strategy known under heaven. Disciples thrive in the church. They grow weak and listless and begin to fall away if there's no community that holds them together. I like to watch those Animal Planet movies, you know, where you've got the wildebeests that are going through the African desert. And you, you watch these lions, and you can see the lions crouching behind bushes and stuff, and they're looking for one of these wildebeests that they're going to pick off and kill. Who do the lions always go after? Stragglers. The stragglers. So the ones that stick together in a crowd, they're protected. The stragglers or the weak or the sickly ones that, that are way behind the rest of them, the lion, they're just easy pickings. And that's the same way in the church. Unless we bind ourselves together as a community, we're going to find ourselves straggling off here, straggling off there, and the devil's just going to pick us off, and he's going, to, he's going to do a number on us. So it's important that we plant churches where there is true community. And that's one of the reasons why here at the bridge we have, we're going to be forming um, membership where the, the commitment is something that each one of us can make to each other. It's not like I am just passing through. I'm just uh, a shopper here. And if I find something better down the road, then I'm out of here. That, that's not New Testament Christianity. What we find in the New Testament are people that are committed to a local body committed to use their finances and their gifts and their time for the furtherance of that church and for the evangelization of the lost. So Paul was all about planting churches. And I believe that these churches that he planted were not isolated 
churches all on their own, I believe that they networked together. They cooperated together. They worked together. The reason I believe that is because some of the churches that he planted turned out to be very large. Like Ephesus. If you read Acts chapter 19, it seems like that church probably had many hundreds, if not thousands of people in it. But it's called the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2.1. So when God looked down on the city of Ephesus, he saw a church. All of the born-again believers in that city. And I believe that the, the different house churches that met in Ephesus, there, if there had to be many of them, if there was many hundreds of Christians, maybe there were dozens or even hundreds of house churches, they saw themselves as part of the church in Ephesus. So what that would mean is that each of these churches is networking and cooperating and seeing themselves as part of a bigger whole, although they're committed to a smaller group. And that's really what I think the Lord would have us do here at the bridge. We, we need to be all about preaching the gospel. We have to be talking about Jesus. It's got to come out of our mouths. Secondly, we need to be about making disciples, which is investing our lives in people who come to faith. Thirdly, we need to be about planting churches. And the expression that the churches that I'm talking about would, would take is churches like this. Churches that are simple, that are reproducible, that do, they do not require a seminary trained pastor to lead them. You don't need big programs and a big budget and a, a huge facility. All you need are people that love each other and somebody who's got a house big enough to have 15 or 20 disciples meeting in it. it it's simple. You can reproduce them rapidly. This is how, this is how the church has so rapidly spread throughout China. In the last 50, 60 years, it's been through the house church movement. There have been church planting movements, which are rapid reproducing indigenous movements all across China. In fact, it's hard for the leaders to try to keep up with the people coming to Christ over there. It's actually very exciting. And some of the same things are happening now in Africa and in Latin America. And many times, it's the house church movement that is the one... God uses many different kinds of church, but the house church movement is right at the forefront of this rapid multiplication and evangelization of the world. Okay, so let's bring it down to a conclusion. God has called us to exalt Him as one of the purposes of the church, to edify one another, but He's also called us to evangelize the world, and we are to do that through preaching, discipling, and planting churches. And our mission here is to make disciples who make disciples. Our mission is to get the gospel to every person in the world. Now, of course, 25 people are not going to be able to do that. But we can make a huge impact where we live. And I would say, let's start with the city of Rancho Cordova. And if that's too big, let's start with Anatolia. 2,000 homes in this community. Why not start there? We can get the gospel to every person that lives in Anatolia. No problem. Give us a few Saturdays. <laughs> we'll go to every single house. We'll knock on their door. We'll offer them a free Bible, a gospel tract. We'll ask them if you have any prayer needs. We'll see if the Lord is doing anything in people's lives. So that's what we're doing. We're looking for the ones that the Lord is calling, the Lord's drawing, the Lord's opening up their hearts. Many people are non-responsive. That's okay. We're looking for the steel filings. We're just a magnet drawing, you know, across the sand, drawing those steel filings out. 
We're looking for the ones that the Lord is dealing with and working on. So, my encouragement for us as a church is to figure out a plan and a strategy of how we're going to reach every person. You say, Brian, you're nuts. No, no, I'm, I'm just trying to take the Bible literally. Why don't we dialogue about this? Maybe in our Q&A time, we can dialogue and we can come up with a plan or a strategy of how we can actually obey Jesus. Let's pray first. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon your word, and we ask that you'd give us wisdom to know how we can actually obey you in the place where we live today, with the people that we have, and our gifts and talents. So Lord, seal the truth of your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.